Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. I welcome all of you to our podcast series on behavioral health issues. This is a partnership between Prestige and the DC Department of Behavioral Health. And I'm so honored and excited to talk with our guest and respected uh, professional, Dr. Edwin Chapman. Dr. Chapman, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Paul. It's my pleasure. Yes, yes. We've shared some time previously together on another symposium, and we've spoken before, and I'm excited about the information you're going to breathe on this topic of medication-assisted uh, treatment. But let me just say that Dr. Chapman has practiced in Washington, D.C. for over 40 years, specializing in internal medicine and addiction medicine. Over the past 20 years, he has investigated the complex mix of addiction, untreated mental illness, infectious disease, criminal behavior, and chronic diseases in which patients present with. Could you please just tell us a little bit about your background professionally and personally? Why don't we start with the personal? Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in uh, Gary, Indiana. Indiana, um, okay. And I came to Washington in uh, 1964 to go to uh, undergrad school at Howard University. Yeah. And uh, I followed that uh, with medical school at Howard. And mm-hmm. then stayed in Washington, uh, found it to be very intriguing, and uh, did an uh, internship uh, at Friedman's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And then was with the first uh, group of doctors that moved into the, the new Howard University Hospital. Isn't that something? Why Howard? How were you inclined to select Howard as your, your institution of training and learning? Well, I had an older brother uh, uh, who's about uh, nine years uh, ahead of me. Went the same course, so he went to medical uh, undergrad school at Howard and uh, medical school at Howard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I was uh, interviewed uh, by an Ivy League school and didn't quite know where it was located, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, I was asked by the interviewer where Howard was located. I said, "Well, it's in Washington D.C." Yeah. I think he was a little a little insulted, but uh, my brother was glad that I chose Howard and told me that, you know, the experience that he had was just magnificent. Yeah. How did medicine, so it sounds like at a very early age, you were already committed and focused on going into medicine. Uh, what was the influence there? Why, how were you so clear on medicine would be your profession? So it was interesting. My father, uh, uh, I was actually born in St. Louis mm-hmm. and the family moved to Gary when I was three months old. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was the first executive director of the Urban League in uh, Gary. Mm-hmm. And when he got there, there was uh, a lot of uh, strife in that uh, 
there was a school strike that was racially motivated. Mm-hmm. And then there was also the fact that uh, black physicians were not allowed to admit patients into the two uh, predominantly white hospitals in Gary. And so he had a hand, uh, a significant hand in getting the first two doctors uh, uh, admitting privileges there. So I think he kind of uh, influenced uh, both of us to uh, yeah, sure. uh, enter medicine. And that's been pretty much my focus. What, what did your parents think about your, your choice and profession? Oh, they, uh, they were, uh, I'm sure they, they were glad. <laughs> they, were, they were very glad. Okay. And very proud of you, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah they're yeah. both deceased, but, uh, you know, it's, it's that uh, background and uh, drive that uh, kind of pushed me in this direction. Obviously, they were very much involved in uh, civil rights uh, throughout their lives. For sure. And I'm sure the sense of community, not only within the household, but the external community also promoted and encouraged and expected you to excel. Something that I think is very necessary even today, uh, that we need others to empower us and to be invested in us and place an expectation of excellence upon us from the very earliest age of, in our development. There's an expectation that you will be successful. So you go to Howard, Washington, D.C., and then you decide, uh, and I, I imagine you have to select a specialty, right? Right. And what was the specialty service you uh, identified with initially? Internal medicine, and then I did a, a fellowship in cardiology. Mm. Um, but about 20 years into my practice in uh, around uh, the year 2000. And this was several years after the events uh, in Washington in 1995, I believe it was the march and the Million Man March. Oh, I was there. I I was there. And so you began to open up uh, and and see all of these men. And and it was just a a fabulous day. Uh, So about two or three years later, a friend of mine was writing a grant for Black male uh, employment, mm-hmm. and I uh, happened to look at it uh, for him and realized that about uh, 20 or 30 percent of the uh, men were testing positive for drugs. That's so right. uh, at that time, uh, he was working for the Community Action Agency and mm-hmm. decided to write a grant for reopening a methadone clinic and yeah. as the medical director. And I tell you, the experience of being in the methadone clinic and seeing the destruction in our community was uh, kind of inspired me to get in, in this area. So, Absolutely. So I, I tell folks that uh, I really didn't learn to practice medicine until uh, I started uh, substance abuse treatment. Yes. Really look back and hear the histories of what had happened in these individuals' lives. Right. Was, was really putting all that you learn in undergrad school in psychology, sociology. That's right, that's uh, right. Uh, really to work. So it really actually made medicine more exciting because you were then able to really develop a more personal relationship with the patients rather than just looking at uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, or heart failure. Uh, exactly. Good health is such an important stability factor in recovery. Uh, and we know that one of the consequences of long-term and sometimes even short-term substance use is deterioration of health and chronic and acute health conditions. And if left unmanaged, influence the uh, instability uh, and the ongoing practice of, of poor health. And so not all practitioners 
practitioners in the health field have a good understanding of the other dynamics that influence good health uh, and even have the tolerance to, to have the discussion and to sit with the patient to really understand the critical experiences that led up to some of the decisions that are promoting their poor health or and or good health. And it takes a special clinician with a real commitment. I was at that Million Man March. It impacted me in a significant way. And it only encouraged me more to particularly focus on urban care, uh, particularly uh, services devoted and committed to African-American men. Um, Absolutely. It really refocused and shifted me. And it was so impactful. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So this, this whole inspiration to work with people in recovery, what was that the result of specifically? So you, you're doing internal medicine, fellowship in cardiology. So, so being introduced to the methadone clinic and, and methadone, I would consider a miracle drug because that's really a, the only medication that we had uh, to really combat opioid addiction at the time. That's right. But I was also taken aback uh, by the fact that patients were only receiving the substance abuse treatment and they had so many other problems. They had mental health problems mm -hmm. and we didn't uh, always have a psychologist, uh, did not have a psychiatrist. Uh, and of course, medical problems were not taken care of in that setting. That's so right. We would see patients come in that had high blood pressure or uh, uncontrolled diabetes, mm -hmm. actually felt a colon cancer on an admission physical examination, I felt a mass in the patient's abdomen. Okay. And sure enough, it was really a metastatic colon cancer mm. at the time of admission. So that really made me refocus to the fact that we really needed to create an integrated model of care. Absolutely. We needed psychologists, social workers, That's right. uh, psychiatrists, and primary care all in the same setting. So uh, when buprenorphine came out, mm -hmm. uh, initially had some reservations about using it in my private office, but then uh, was approached by a senior parole officer at the uh, Superior Court. Yeah. He wanted to introduce this as an alternative to methadone. Mm -hmm. And so the patients, the uh, clients were coming out of the criminal justice system. They would see their... Um, parole officer, and then the parole officer would refer them to a psychologist. And then if they felt they were appropriate, they would send them to me for medication management. Okay. So I started off with about five patients and really had no more than five or 10 patients at a time, but mm -hmm. got comfortable with that. And then I said, well, you know, uh, our patients are not being screened for hepatitis. They're not being screened for AIDS. Their blood pressures are not being ma managed. Why can't I do that here in my office? And so that's been the drive ever since. So I actually went back to Howard. I was invited back to Howard by the then uh, chair of psychiatry, Dr. William Lawson, yes. uh, to work on a project with them. And he was also doing research with buprenorphine. Okay. And part of his drive was also to get more doctors at the hospital interested in substance abuse treatment. Right. Uh, so we were we were working uh, really at, at opposite ends, but towards mm -hmm. the same uh, the same result. And actually, then uh, developed a program using telemedicine as mm. as a uh, anchor. And at the time, I was still on paper records in my office, 
So when I converted my office about five, five or six years ago, yeah. we decided to put in uh, telemedicine at the same time. And so we were a bit ahead of the curve. We were told at the time that, well, telemedicine was for rural areas. It didn't have a, uh, uh, an application in an urban setting because you can get around. But we, we now know otherwise. Kevin, it sounds like you've always been proactive and kind of in front of the curve and taking some uh, educated risks uh, based on the trends and what you're seeing in the community. Because the community and at the grassroots level, that really tells the story, right? One thing I know about active addiction, the the thing that you uh, manage the least is your health. Who's got time to go to the doctor when I got to take care of my habit and my relationship with the substance? You talked about, so how, tell us, doctor, how does MAT work in SUD programs? How does that, because you said something significant. Back in the day, uh, particularly probation or parole, they were real clear with to the provider as well as to the offender that, no, you're not going to take no methadone. Uh-uh, you have to go to an abstinence-based service. That's the only thing we're going to acknowledge as an appropriate treatment modality. Uh, and we're, you know, we don't want you on methadone. But so today, everything has moved forward and progressed, and there's a better understanding of good and best practices. How does MAT work now in substance abuse programs? How, how does that? So you're absolutely right. When I was in medical school uh, starting 50 years ago, the last thing we wanted to see was somebody on methadone mm. because we thought, you know, just described that this was a moral problem. That's uh, right. We were told that methadone was a crutch. But that was before CAT scans, MRIs, and PET scans. Now we have so much more objective uh, evidence with uh, neurobiology and so forth. So we now know that, that there are actually changes in the brain that can occur just from, from uh, psychiatric uh, diseases, from stress. And when you really start putting all of that together and really understanding that you're not just replacing one drug with another, that these patients have specific deficiencies that can be corrected with medication. So we've heard stories about patients who, a young fellow, maybe 16, 17 years old with a broken leg, goes to the emergency room and they give them a Percocet and they say, oh, wow, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. Well, That's right. well on the other hand, I'm allergic to morphine. So we, we can see that there are biological differences, even just looking at, at the phenotypic response, yeah. that we're, we're not all the same. Um, That's right. And, and so, so some people, how, why would somebody have that type of reaction? More recently, about eight years ago, we found that um, uh, codeine and cough syrup mm. should not be given to children under 12. Okay. Because that. now we know that about 20% of those children are ultra rapid metabolizers and break coding down to a more potent uh, uh, drug. So we're now really understanding through precision medicine, uh, now that we have genomic code, we're now trying to match your genomic code Mm. with medications and predict what medications you should and should not take. We're not there yet, but that's, that's where we're headed. It's obvious your practice is deliberate, is strategic, and it's based on the science and the research. It's not haphazardly applied. It's carefully respected. uh, And you have to be proficient 
uh, and have a good command of the information. I think you referenced a moment ago that you worked in, in methadone clinic before. And I think there was a time where you mentioned you had worked with Dr. Charles Hall over there at DC General Detox. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the reason I referenced that is I've worked closely with Dr. Hall. He was the medical director at one time of the Reentry and Sanction Center. I had a chance to really work closely with him. But I recall the detox center being on the grounds of, of DC General and how difficult it was uh, in terms of still the, the ongoing stigma regarding that population and how difficult it was to convince others who are also practicing health to embrace this group and to treat them with respect, dignity, and sensitivity. I also was connected with another methanol clinic called PIDARC, which was in Foggy Bottom, uh, 21st and F Street, right in the heart of GW campus, and how challenging it was to operate a methadone clinic in that context because of the stigma and the fears. And and what we found is throughout the years, there was never, ever an incident, never one incident involving students or harm to property. The stigma has it uh, has is there any can I be optimistic that the general community and and the healthcare practitioners have removed the stigma or resolved their stigma? So Paula, that's one of the the objectives of connecting this work with the faith community. So mm. uh, about fifteen years ago, I got involved with the Leadership Council for Healthy Communities, headed by uh, Dr. Frank uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Frank Tucker. Okay. Um, and we were initially uh, focusing on AIDS. Uh, then we uh, focused on hepatitis C, and we gradually got into substance abuse. Uh, he knew all along that I was working in a methadone clinic, but he said, we're not quite ready to expose all of the pastors to this. Yeah. But now, lo and behold, we actually had a meeting uh, six months ago where we brought in top psychiatrists, Mm. uh, including Dr. Lawson, including Ivan Walks, with a group of pastors talking about just what you're talking about, Mm. talking about stigma, talking about uh, stress, and really talking about stress in the clergy community, believe it or not. They are under stress. Absolutely. So, So it's really bringing it into the faith community and let the faith community help us get that message out. And now they're understanding how all of these things that have happened to our community over the past 400 years mm-hmm. are cumulative. That's and they right. just change, uh, the face changes uh, somewhat. We went from, from slavery to Jim Crow to segregation, and now uh, the so-called war on drugs. Well, That's that right. war on drugs ended up being a war on us because instead of being treated medically, it mm-hmm. was treated uh, as a criminal activity. Absolutely. Now, look what has happened now that this opioid epidemic has hit the suburbs and rural areas. Look at so that. things change. Now, it's, do you realize that substance abuse was not considered a medical problem mm. uh, or, or, or a specialty problem uh, until about four years ago? Right. Now, the American Society of Addiction Medicine is now the American Board of Addiction Medicine. Uh, and that's just four years ago. So really what I'm saying is mental health is now taking place, its natural place at the top of the heap. We've always pushed mental health and 
to the side as if it was something mystical. It really wasn't a science. Now we're seeing that mental health is really leading healthcare. That's right. And and it makes sense. Yeah. You can't do anything below the neck without uh, <laughs> dealing with the head. That's right, Dr. Chapman. You're absolutely right. Listen, this pandemic has also highlighted that the medical reality uh, justifies a mental health response, right? Exactly. And so how has the practice of medication-assisted treatment been impacted by this COVID-19 epidemic? And, and if you could give me the perspective of the patient and also the practitioner, what, what's the reality now that we have COVID here? So the one good thing that we can say is that we know that we had to change our approach. So mm-hmm. Methadone clinics uh, suddenly had to change. Uh, my office had to change. But it really was the impetus and has been the impetus to really get uh, telebehavioral health. Uh, That's right. You know, how can you connect? We ha- you have to connect with your patients. Uh, right. Because isolation is the worst thing that can happen right. in this in this atmosphere. So mm-hmm. now all of a sudden, uh, psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists can connect with their patients at home would probably be more comfortable, mm-hmm. uh, and where they're more likely to to keep an appointment and feel comfortable uh, with that appointment. So it's really changed the dynamics. Now the downside, of course, is is patients uh, uh, now cannot always come into the clinic. Uh, but the good part of that is they're getting more take-home uh, yes. and hopefully they're not uh, abusing the take-home. So it's it's really a give and take. But right. those changes, there's some good changes that are coming out of this. We hope that those uh, changes will, will stay. Dr. Chapman, have, have you and your team of medical staff over there, have you, has your anxiety increase slightly? Are you more concerned about your well-being as you practice and heal and support your patients? Um, are you more aware of just your, your health status? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we did change some things uh, in terms of uh, the waiting room area. We, mm-hmm. we only allow uh, four to six patients in at a, at a time, and we moved them very quickly. We installed a plexiglass uh, separation and uh, reception area. And we limited uh, some of the things that we would normal, normally do for uh, a number of months, uh, in, including uh, taking uh, vital signs other than temperatures. So in order to protect the staff, and it's worked out uh, pretty well. Uh, we're now back uh, doing vital signs and selected uh, physical examinations, but we're very careful and the staff is, is very cognizant of uh, hand washing wearing a mask and social distancing. So, yeah. but we feel that we are a vital provider. Mm-hmm. And, but think about the providers who are in the emergency room oh, or who are in the intensive care unit. So we have to do our part to really cut down as much as we can on any potential traffic that could go to the hospital. And this is a vital service. Absolutely. Uh, treatment, mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, if we can keep our patients stable, that cuts down on, on their exposure and also the exposure to uh, emergency personnel and hospital personnel. Absolutely. Do you expect, request, or require your staff to undergo testing for COVID-19? They have not undergone uh, testing per se. And, you know, the testing has been 
somewhat uh, speculative in that you can get a lot of false negatives. So, yeah. so unless unless someone is sick, you know, we maintain those um, uh, protections by wearing a mask, by keeping social distancing and hand washing. Yeah, yeah, understood. I want to, in our closing moments, just go back a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about suboxone treatment and the requirement or expectation that counseling accompany the practice, uh, that you the, the writing a prescription and you know honoring the medicine is a part of it, but each client should also be receiving some form of therapy counseling. That's your understanding, and what do you see? How does counseling and suboxone, how does that work hand in hand? It's a vital component, and it's the most difficult component to really control because that's outside of our office. In other words, with buprenorphine, you have the requirement to have the ability to refer, uh, and that puts mm -hmm. uh, the responsibility on the patient. So we really think that if the payment structure can include tele-behavioral uh, health counseling, that that would solve a great problem in that, that we could then really uh, utilize those resources in a more efficient and effective way and actually get feedback from the, uh, the counselor. So we yeah. really have a lot of uh, expectations and hope going forward uh, coming out of, we're looking for positive things coming out of the COVID uh, crisis. And this is one yes. of the things that I think can really uh, positively impact I could have a patient here right now, and you could actually counsel them in one of the rooms without that patient uh, ever leaving the office. So the patient's actually That's getting right. two services at, at one time. Uh, you don't That's need right. another bus fare. You don't need another appointment. Uh, it just requires the economic system to appreciate that. Right. Dr. Chapman, I have two sons. I have a 35-year-old and a 19-year-old. That's another story. We'll do another segment on the age difference. We'll just, we'll just put that to the side. But what would you tell young African-American males about the benefits, the value, the just the, what's the good news of maybe going into medicine? How do you encourage a young African male to pursue a career in medicine? What would you say to them? I think, again, that's why this type of work is so important, because if we're able to connect what we do to, let's say, the faith community, yeah. we can then find that's youngsters right. who will see us doing what we're doing. I, I think that's probably how we got in, in, involved. We saw folks that looked like us doing this work. That's right. And found it intriguing. Absolutely. Found uh, the fact that we can help people. Uh, I tell folks again that you just can't imagine how it feels to have someone who's come to you and says that I've been to prison nine times. Uh, I've uh, drug abuse. And then you're able to see that same person 15 years later, drug-free, never been back to, the, uh, to prison, never been to the hospital, uh, telling you that uh, their blood pressure is controlled, their diabetes is controlled, and they're out mentoring other people in the community. And so, so we're seeing the full cycle the fact that we can change somebody's life and then that person can go back into the community and change other lives. That is the most gratifying thing to come out of this, this whole process. And I think that's why I fell in love with uh, 
this practice is I began to meet yeah. so many people who really had the same focus in mind. The fact that we can stop what appeared to be a, a cultural problem and really analyze it and understand that this was all, uh, all came about due to 400 years of oppression. Your expression of passion and commitment is undeniable. And you're right. It's so rewarding. Matter of fact, it's the best paycheck we can get when we see one of our patients, consumers, clients make this change and become a viable participant and fully engaged in life. How rewarding it is. And that's why we do what we do. Uh, and that's why we have to perfect ourselves and become the best we can so that we can offer the best service to, to our community. Dr. Chapman, this has been rewarding for me. I've always, I'm always honored to be in your presence and to, to learn from you and your extensive uh, experience in providing community-based behavioral health services. In closing, what would you describe as our biggest challenge right now uh, in healthcare, and particularly in community-based healthcare? What is the biggest challenge? So my focus, as I said, for the past uh, eight to 10 years, has been to integrate substance abuse, mental health, primary care, and the social determinants of health into my practice. Uh, so that end up having a one-stop uh, shop, so to speak. And mm -hmm. then actually uh, connecting that to other practices that are doing the same thing. So we then have a, a reciprocal re relationship where we're actually sharing uh, our expertise on the same patient at the same time. And I think that's how we'll get the best results. So it's, it's really building a collaborative model of care. It's not my patient, it's not your patient, it's our patient. And each of us will have, have the ability to contribute what we do best uh, yes. to uplift that person. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I used to, um, I was the deputy director of the Reentry and Sanction Center which was uh, managed under CSOSA. And in, in the model of assessment, we had all of the disciplines of mental health engaged and trying to understand how did that offender or returning citizen get to this place or this condition? So you had psychiatry weighing in, you had psychology weighing in, you had social work, you had medicine. That collaboration was significant, particularly if we all could get to the same conclusion. Because once we got to the same conclusion, we could generally agree on the plan on how to respond to the dilemma that was in front of us. So that collaborative practice is so necessary. And I like what you said. It's not my patient, your patient. It's our patient. Dr. Chapman, this has been a wonderful discussion. I would like to keep this going. You know, we're going to invite you back. This is just round one. So start looking at your schedule for part two, because there has to be a part two. Uh, but we honor your service. We thank you for your service. We respect uh, your service. It's so necessary. One thing I know, and I'll close with this, is that patients uh, have to give you permission to treat them, right? It's not based on a client assignment. At some point, the patient has to say, I trust you. And yeah. I, I'm sure that you have the full confidence, the full confidence of the patients that walk in your door because they're greeted with no judgments, no expectations, no stigma. Your only expectation is that they will get healthy and recover. Uh, and so your practice is, is, is so important. And we thank you again, Dr. Chapman. 
how can people reach you? I know after this segment, everyone's going to try to, where, where do we reach Dr. Chad? <laughs> What's the best way to reach you? So our office number is 202-396-8550. Okay. 202-396-8550. Okay. Um, and and if you don't get an answer, just call back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. And so we're going to encourage people to follow up with you if there's a need or if they have a need in, in service, if they have a loved one who is is suffering the ravages of addiction and, and needs some additional support, we encourage them to come to your practice uh, for, for healing. Do you have a website that you'd like to reference? Uh, I don't have a website. Uh, okay. You know, I'm a little old fashioned. <laughs> okay. Understand, I, I am as well. Well, Dr. Chapman, we thank you again. I'm gonna ask that you stay safe, you stay well, and, and remain encouraged because we need you. We need you here in the district to continue fighting for our community. So thank you, Dr. Chapman. And thank you for this opportunity. Yes, sir. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.